welcome to Anchored by Truth, brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. In John 14.6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Our goal is to encourage everyone to grow in the Christian faith by anchoring themselves to the secure truth found in the inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word of God. You shall not make any image or any form that is in heaven from above, or what is in the earth, or what is in the water beneath the earth. You shall not bow to them, and you shall not serve them, because I am Lord Jehovah, your God, a jealous God. Exodus chapter 20, verse 4, Aramaic Bible in Plain English. Hello, I'm Victoria Kay. Welcome to Anchored by Truth, brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. We're glad that you're able to be with us today. Today on Anchored by Truth, we're continuing our series on the Ten Commandments. In the studio, we have R.D. Fierro, who is an author and founder of Crystal Sea Books. R.D., you wanted to undertake the study of the Ten Commandments because you think that people either take the Ten Commandments for granted or dismiss them entirely. What do you mean by that? Well, I'd also like to greet everyone today and welcome them to Anchored by Truth. We're so glad that you're able to join us here today. And we hope that these programs are helpful and informative because we know that today we live in challenging times and every Christian needs to be not just committed to their faith, but we need to be committed to our ability to demonstrate the authenticity and the reliability of our faith. And that does take a little bit extra effort, but that's what we do here on Anchored by Truth is provide our listeners with the ability, with the background to be able to do that, to have confidence in their faith. Well, the Ten Commandments are clearly one part of the Bible with which even non-Christians have some familiarity. Just about everybody in certainly the Western world has probably heard about the Ten Commandments at one point or another. The Ten Commandments are one of the most recognizable parts of the Christian faith. But as Shakespeare warned us, familiarity breeds contempt. And by that quote, what Shakespeare meant was that when things are excessively familiar to us, we can lose our appreciation or our respect for them. And I think that's the temptation that confronts many Christians with respect to the Ten Commandments. I mean, we hear about them so much, and frankly, they all make so much common sense, that I think we start to miss the amazing revelation for our faith that they contain. Now, conversely, unbelievers, they'll hear the first commandment, which says, you shall not worship any other gods but me. Well, unbelievers will hear that first commandment, and then they will take that and just dismiss the balance of the commandments as being so much religious nonsense or some other way of dismissing them. Now, what happens with either of these views is that we wind up not paying a lot of attention to the substance, to the meaning and to the importance of the Ten Commandments. Either the familiarity or the disdain winds up diminishing the importance of the commandments in our lives. But if we will just stop and take a few minutes to look at the commandments and just think about what they say and the people they were given to and what they mean, if we will just take a few minutes to stop and look at them carefully, 
we will find out that they truly contain an amazing body of expressed wisdom. And not just an amazing body of wisdom for the Exodus generation who initially received the commandments, but they also contain an amazing body of expressed wisdom for our generation. And of course, increasing our wisdom is one of the principal reasons we need to become familiar with the Bible. We are certainly not discouraging familiarity with the Ten Commandments or any other part of the Bible. But what we are saying is that we shouldn't let our familiarity tempt us to look past the value that is in the Ten Commandments. As we've noted before on Anchored by Truth, when you first hang a new poster or picture on your wall, you see it every time you go into the room. But after weeks or months and years go by, you scarcely notice it. Probably the only time you really pay attention to it is when someone new comes to visit and tells you how nice the picture is. You see the picture then, but you haven't for weeks or months before that because it was just part of the background. And that's what we want to do with this series on the Ten Commandments. We want people to notice them again and maybe for the first time realize that the Ten Commandments contain evidence of the necessity for the existence of the commandments. And the Ten Commandments, by their content, give evidence that they were legitimate pronouncements by an almighty God to a people who were just now beginning to travel to a new homeland after they had been on a 400-year sojourn in a foreign land and after they had spent the last several decades in that foreign land in slavery. And the Second Commandment is a great example of those two observations that it is absolutely necessary for the benefit of our faith, but also that it was a commandment which would have made sense and had relevance to a generation that was just now leaving a long period of Egyptian slavery. The second commandment is found in Exodus chapter 20, verses 4 and 5. We heard those verses in our opening scripture today from the version of the Bible called the Aramaic Bible in Plain English. Here are those same verses from the New International Version. Quote, you must not make for yourself an idol of any kind or an image of anything in the heavens or on the earth or in the sea. You must not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God who will not tolerate your affection for any other gods. Unquote. So what is the first thing that you want us to notice? Well, first, let's note that the second commandment and the first commandment are complementary. They go together. The first commandment is, you shall have no other gods before me. And that establishes the bedrock principle that there is one and only one true God, who's the God of the Bible. Now, the second commandment begins a series of instructions that tell us how we are to incorporate that bedrock principle into our daily lives. And the second commandment is frankly founded on a very simple, plain, and practical observation about human beings. Which is? That human beings are visual creatures. Now, we have five senses, sight, touch, taste, smell, and hearing. But unless someone loses their sight, someone who is blind, the vast majority of people in the world probably learn the most about the world around them through their sight. Or said slightly differently, and maybe a little bit ominously, our eyes can get us into more trouble than our other four senses put together. Well, that thought deserves a big amen. And the Bible even points that out. In the New King James Version, Proverbs chapter 27, verse 20 says, quote, Hell and destruction are never full, 
so the eyes of man are never satisfied, unquote. It's pretty significant that the same verse that tells us that the eyes of man are never satisfied is packaged with the observation that hell is never full. Yes, we take in a lot of information through our vision, through our eyes. So it makes perfect sense that when God began telling people how to avoid violating the first commandment, he gave the second commandment that had a very strong visual component. God prohibited his people from making any representation of him for a wide variety of reasons, but certainly one of the most important of those reasons was because it is so easy for us to get misled by the things that we see. You know, the widespread plague of internet pornography is graphic evidence that an appeal to the eyes is the source of an awful lot of mischief. And one form of mischief, frankly, that has plagued mankind for thousands of years has been rampant idolatry. So let's remember again that God gave the Ten Commandments to his people during the period of the Exodus when they were just emerging from living in a culture that had worshipped, by some counts, over 2,000 different gods. Talk about idolatry. Egypt was awash in gods and goddesses, And certainly the Hebrews who had had that 400-year sojourn in Egypt, they were very well familiar with the Egyptians' religious system, and they were very well familiar with how those gods and goddesses were represented. Pretty much anyone who has ever watched a movie or TV program about ancient Egypt knows that the Egyptian pantheon of gods was represented visually. And these representations were not just limited to temples or religious settings. The Egyptians put pictures of their gods and goddesses in all kinds of settings and buildings and even in hieroglyphs, and they knew that one of the most common motifs for representing their gods was with figures that had the body of a human and the head of an animal. Quite right. Horus was represented as a falcon-headed man. Sekhmet was a lioness-headed woman. Anubis was represented as a jackal or a jackal head on a man, and Hathor was a cow. But sometimes the Egyptians, rather than using the combination of a human body and an animal head, just use a human figure to represent a god. Amun-Re, who was the sun god and was the king of their gods, was quite often represented by just a male figure. But the use of images as part of pagan worship, that was by no means limited to the Egyptians. Most of the pagan religious practices of the nations around Palestine, around the Israelites, use some form of iconography as part of their worship. Iconography just means making an image or a totem for use in worship. Now, often those images or totems were human-type figures, but the use of animal images to represent gods was also quite common. The Babylonian god Dagon was a fish god, and Heket, an Egyptian fertility goddess, was represented as a frog. So, when God prohibited the Israelites from making images, he was prohibiting a practice that was commonplace in Egypt, Canaan, and the vast majority of the Middle East. Making and using visual idols is far less common today, though it's not unknown. Even in our day and age, satanic figures are often represented as human figures, but with the head and horns of a goat, and often with eagle-type wings. But still, today, We don't see nearly as many God-type idol images as the ancient Israelites would have. Correct. 
So today, we might almost think that the second commandment is unnecessary, but it certainly is not. It is just as relevant to us today as it was to the Israelites when they first heard it. Because one of the other functions of the second commandment is to remind us that God must not be represented by any kind of image because God cannot be represented by any kind of image or a statue or a figurine or anything that is tangible or visible. Now, it would be impossible for any human being to create an image of God because no human being ever has or ever will see God, or at least we're not going to see God until after Christ returns and we have the new Jerusalem and the new heavens and the new earth as it's described in the book of Revelation, chapters 21 and 22. The first reason human beings cannot make a representation of God is covered by 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 15. The New International Version of that says, quote, The King of kings and Lord of lords is immortal and lives in unapproachable light whom no one has seen or can see, unquote. So Paul tells us that no one has ever seen God or can see God. This is particularly significant coming from Paul, who at one point in his life had been, quote, caught up to the third heaven, unquote. We learn that from 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 2. A common interpretation of the term, quote, third heaven, unquote, is that the first heaven is the sky where the birds fly. The second heaven is what we call outer space, where the stars and the stellar bodies exist. And the third heaven is the heaven which contains the throne of God. So if Paul, who had been transported either by vision or physically to the third heaven, said no one can see God, Paul would know what he was talking about. Furthermore, we know from John 4.24 that God is spirit. The New Living Translation puts that verse this way, For God is spirit, so those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. So we can add to the fact that any time we start to create an image or a sculpture in an attempt to represent God, we can add the fact that in order to even begin to create an image or sculpture, we have to have some kind of a physical image to work from. Well, in God's case, there is nothing physical to work from. There's nothing physical to begin with. God is spirit, not physical. Now, a word of caution here. We sometimes use the word spirit as a synonym for the word ghost. And we tend to think of ghosts or spirits as being sort of wispy, flimsy bits of semi-transparent puffs of smoke. To us, spirits and ghosts are ephemeral. They're insubstantial. So when we hear that God is spirit, we might somehow get the impression that God is kind of like a hologram, something you can see, but you can sure put your hand right through it. Well, nothing could be further from the truth. We think of the universe we can see and touch and our world as being solid. In actuality, most atoms are small bits of matter separated by a lot of space. But to us, our world is real, and we think of the spirit realm as somehow being unreal. But Hebrews chapter 11 verse 3 reminds us that, quote, We understand that the entire universe was formed at God's command, that what we see did not come from anything that can be seen, unquote. That's from the New Living Translation. Or as you put it in your book, Doors of Destiny, quote, 
The unseen created the seen, and someday will lay claim to its own, unquote. While the words become difficult, the truth is that God and the angelic realm is more real than our physical realm. The point is, we must guard against the temptation to think of God, who is a spirit, as someone being less substantial than our tangible world. God is immeasurably more substantial than anything that exists in our universe. Right. So those are two simple reasons why human beings are incapable of creating any kind of a meaningful representation of God. No one ever has or ever will see God, and we have no way in our physical world of portraying a spirit meaningfully. The Hollywood versions of ghosts and spirits, that may be fine for the movies, but they would be entirely inaccurate, and frankly, they would be disrespectful when it comes to God. The second commandment was given to us in large part to guard us from treating God lightly or disrespectfully by trying to employ our puny human imaginations in creating some image of Him. The second commandment reinforces our awareness of the spiritual nature of God by steering us completely away from doing something that it would be impossible to do in the first place. But there is another one of God's attributes that also shows that the second commandment makes perfect sense to give to human beings. I already know what you're going to say. One of God's most fundamental and obvious attributes is that God is infinite. 1 Kings 8, verse 27 puts it this way, The heavens, even the highest heaven, cannot contain you, unquote. That verse comes from the dedication speech that Solomon gave at the dedication of the temple he built in Jerusalem. Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived, felt compelled to acknowledge God's infinitude even as they had just built a magnificent building to honor God's majesty. Yes, God is infinite. Now that's a way of describing God by saying what God is not. God is not finite. But if you tried to make an image, whether it was by drawing or sculpting or any other way of creating an image, the first thing you have to do is decide where to start. And the moment you drew your first line or you chose a block of marble or wood, you are automatically starting with a limit. You have to start working within limits. But God doesn't have any limits other than those that come from his own righteous character. And those, quote, limits certainly have nothing to do with anything physical. As human beings, our minds can't even conceive of the infinite really meaningfully. We are finite and we can't escape our finitude. So just to make sure that we don't drift to any sinful impulses into thinking about God, just to keep us away from those sinful impulses, God said to us through the second commandment, don't. Don't try to make an image of me. It would be impossible to begin with, and any attempt you might make to make an image of me will only demean my majesty. God was trying to keep us well away from the sinful impulses that inhabit our hearts so easily. And God also wanted to prevent another temptation, which was common in the ancient world which was to assign a form of divinity to an object or creature. Many of the ancient cultures worshipped stellar objects, such as the sun or the moon. Among the Canaanites, Shemesh was the sun god, and Yare was the moon god. Baal was the storm god, and Yam was the sea god. And we have already talked about the fact that some cultures used living creatures as representations of their gods or goddesses. But again... 
Doing anything like this would make all the same errors that we have already discussed. Yes. Now, in man's limited mind, some man might envision the sun, which is very impressive, and it's a life-giving stellar body. You can see how some people might say, oh, that may be divine. And that's how some ancient peoples viewed it. But in the Bible, the sun is just another created object, and it's fully subject to God. God certainly didn't need the sun for his creation. God created both light and life before he made the sun the source of life for the earth. Well, in many pagan mythologies, the sun was the master, but in the Bible, the sun is always just another one of God's servants. The second commandment helped the Hebrews, who were coming out of being immersed and surrounded by a pagan culture, hundreds of gods, the second commandment helped the Hebrews not to bring the errors of that pagan society with them. And that's one of the reasons God gave the Israelites those commandments at the start of their journey to the promised land. God wanted them to begin this new stage of their national development on the right foot. The Ten Commandments are initially contained in chapter 20 of Exodus, which is the second book of the Bible. Then, they are repeated almost identically in chapter 5 of Deuteronomy, which is the fifth book of the Bible. The Bible has 66 books, so both the giving of the commandments and their reinforcement are fairly early in the revelation of Scripture. And it is interesting to note that throughout the rest of the Scripture, you never see the second commandment violated. We have several descriptions of incidents where men were given visions that included some sort of divine encounter or even a divine figure on a throne. But there is never any attempt in any of those inspired reports, any attempt to describe the being on the throne. As Paul said, the most we ever get is some kind of an image of a person that is obscured by transcendent light. Yes. We have descriptions of what you might call the throne of God in Isaiah chapter 6. Ezekiel chapters 1 and 10, Daniel chapter 7, and in Revelation chapter 4. But in none of those encounters does the inspired biblical writer ever attempt in the least way to describe the person that they see in their vision. Daniel chapter 7 verses 9 and 10 are good illustrations of what we're talking about. Quote, I watched as thrones were put in place, and the Ancient One sat down to judge. His clothing was as white as snow his hair like the purest wool. He sat on a fiery throne with wheels of blazing fire, and a river of fire was pouring out, flowing from his presence. Millions of angels ministered to him. Many millions stood to attend him. Then the court began its session, and the books were opened, unquote. That's from the New Living Translation. And you followed that pattern when you wrote your throne room scene from your allegorical adventure book, The Prodigal's Advocate. Here's what she wrote, quote, There was a royal figure on the throne. At least that's how I thought of what I saw. Of the royalty, I had no doubt. But to call the one I saw a figure is another injustice. The person I beheld was so infinitely glorious that he overwhelmed my mind merely by his presence. I suppose you might say he appears in some ways to be in the center of a cloud of radiant white light. But that would be like comparing a candle flame to the sun, unquote. Yes. It wouldn't be just wrong to describe God in his essence, but it would be blasphemous. And that's something when I wrote Prodigal's Advocate, I definitely wasn't going to do. But God obviously felt as he unfolded his revelation through time and through scripture, 
that it was important to give human beings enough of a glimpse of his majesty and glory to let us know that there is an awfully good reason he put the second commandment in place to begin with. And you know, it's interesting to note that when the second person of the Trinity took on a human nature and body through the incarnation, well, that human body could obviously be seen, could be touched. So obviously the people who saw Jesus knew what Jesus looked like, but there are still no descriptions of Jesus, of his body, his face, his features in Scripture. We have four Gospels about the life of Jesus, and there were other people like Stephen and the Apostle Paul who saw the risen Christ, but not a single inspired Bible writer or reporter ever attempted to describe what Jesus looked like. That's something we should think about. In just about every book you ever read, the first thing the author does is tell us what the hero or heroine or villain, for that matter, looks like. But no Bible writer throughout the Gospels or the New Testament ever tried to tell us anything about the appearance of Jesus. This sounds like a great time to go to God in prayer. Today, let's listen to a prayer for the renewal of the church so the church may once again be the light of truth to a world desperate in its darkness. A prayer for the renewal of the church. Righteous and just Father, you know the thoughts and meditations of your people as no one could. You are the Lord of our hearts and the fulfillment of all of our ambitions. You have numbered the hairs on our head, so you certainly know when we propose to do your will and when we don't. Lord, there are a great many faithful followers of yours in our nation today. There are many whose hearts are totally devoted to you and who want to see your kingdom come and your will be done. Yet within your church, we believe there are many who have been tempted by the snares of the world and a great many who have fallen prey to the evil one. We are saddened and grieved by this, and we yearn for restoration and renewal of the church in our land. Lord, if this nation is to survive and remain a land where people may freely worship you, we acknowledge that it will not be done through or by our efforts. Only the Holy Spirit can change the hearts of our countrymen, and we believe that he will act only as we persistently and continuously pray for renewal to come. Words do not do justice to the longings within our spirits to see this nation be visited by another great awakening. As you have done in the past, bring light to your people. Let us learn to handle your word properly and then bring it to the world by Christ's power, through Christ's love, and praying continuously in Christ's name. Amen. Is the Bible important in your life? Supporting Anchored by Truth with a contribution is an easy way to put your faith into action. The opportunity to help is available at crystalseabooks.com. How wonderful would it be for Jesus to commend us because we made His Word a priority in our lives and giving. We are grateful for your support and partnership. We hope you'll be with us next time, and we hope you'll take some time to encourage friends to tune in also or to listen to the podcast version of this show. If you'd like to hear more, try out crystalseabooks.com where We're not perfect, but our boss is. 
And for those of you who need that website one more time, that's crystalcbooks.com. Crystal, C-R-Y-S-T-A-L-C-S-E-A, and books, B-O-O-K-S dot com. Thank you for your support. Are you hungry for truth? Most people are today. Between changing social standards, cultural chaos, and denominational deviance, confusion is sweeping our community like a tsunami. Will we be swept away? Or will we be anchored by truth? At Crystal Sea Books, our passion is the Bible. The Bible came from the mind of God. The words of God are powerful in truth and love. God will give us peace and strength as we honor His Word. At Crystal Sea Books, we believe the Bible can be a dynamic part of adventure stories, lyrical rhythms, and even humor, as well as inspire our prayers and meditations. That's why Crystal Sea Books is so pleased to offer an all-ages adventure story, Doors of Destiny, a Choice Orb Tale. Many readers have compared the adventure and engagement of Doors of Destiny to the timeless treasures of C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia. And getting a copy of Doors of Destiny couldn't be easier. Just go to crystalcbooks.com and use the link. That's C-R-Y-S-T-A-L-S-E-A-B-O-O-K-S dot com. In Doors of Destiny, the Bible's timeless wisdom is captured in an amazing adventure story that is suitable for all ages. Build your faith as you travel highways and byways that are found beyond the veil of eternity. Get your own copy of Doors of Destiny today. At Crystal Sea Books, we're not perfect, but our boss is.